Most people have heard of phytoestrogens, but did you know there are beneficial phytoandrogens that mimic and support testosterone and more? The top source of these is pine pollen. If you're looking for 100% natural hormonal support for men and women, you've got to try this. Right now, Lost Empire Herbs' best-selling pine pollen is available for one penny plus shipping and handling. Go to GeniusPollen.com to find out more and grab yourself a bag today. No hidden charges, no trial offer, no shenanigans. Just a low-cost way to try Lost Empire Herbs' top product for next to nothing. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have uh, Janice Brainy. She's a uh, part of Watershed Sciences. She's an associate professor at Utah State University. And we're going to talk about uh, her work with uh, watersheds and integrated biological systems and uh, possibly microplastics interacting with them. So, Janice, thank you for coming. Thank you for having me. Yeah, if you would, tell me a bit about your background. How did you get into this area of research in the first place? Well, I, I started out being really interested in lake ecosystems and freshwater ecology. And I quickly came to realize that air quality can have an impact on water quality, which was the topic of my PhD dissertation. Through that work, I came to recognize that there's a pretty significant gap in our knowledge and available information on what is being transported through the atmosphere and what are the potential implications of this material for ecosystem health. And so, yeah, being interested in that, that topic, okay. I developed a research program around that. Yeah, what's your research like right now? Like what, what important questions are you trying to answer? I have um, maybe three or four different major themes in my research at the moment. One major theme is trying to understand what is in the atmosphere, what is being transported through the atmosphere to remote ecosystems, and what are the implications of that deposition. So we're looking at things like microplastics, nutrients, different toxins, different organisms, and how they, how they might be transported on particulates through the atmosphere. And uh, what implications that might have for remote ecosystems, and particularly remote sensitive aquatic ecosystems. One of the reasons I'm really interested in that topic area is that humans have, have really appropriated much of the landscape. We build cities, roads, we have agriculture, we, ha we have animals, we recreate on the landscape, we divert water. All of these different practices has led to an increased generation of dust in the atmosphere. And so that's that's one of the reasons why I'm interested in, in what is being mobilized, how it's being mobilized, where it's moving to, and what the implications are. Mm, another, okay. okay. Another major area of research in our lab is trying to understand how the recession of glaciers is impacting freshwater systems. How, how does this rapid melting of ice influence nutrient transport? How does that change the temperature and physical environment in aquatic systems? And in turn, what does that mean for any organisms that live in freshwater? 
In terms of uh, microplastics, I, I had spoken to one researcher that said, yeah, they do seem to volatilize and get carried on air currents. I guess your research probably corroborates that. What is that like? Like, what have you observed in uh, in air columns in terms of microplastics? We've done a couple of different uh, studies at this point. Um, our first study was trying to understand how much plastic is in the atmosphere, how much plastic is being deposited. And in order to do that, we looked at the deposition of plastic from rainfall, which we call wet deposition, as well as dry deposition. So what falls out of the sky under dry conditions in really remote locations. And so we wanted to use remote locations to help us understand these, this bigger picture movement of plastic through the atmosphere. And we found reasonably high deposition rates of plastics in these remote locations. Our initial study went from 2017 to 2019 and we found plastic deposition rates that were anywhere from 40 to 450 pieces of plastic per meter square per day. So that's that was shocking to me when I first quantified that. In subsequent years, we've seen elevated, more elevated plastic deposition rates. So it seems that every year that we've been looking at it, plastic deposition rates have increased in these remote locations. But because of the way we had set up our study, we were sampling at a relatively high temporal and spatial resolution, we were able to use atmospheric models to try to understand where that plastic was coming from and how it was moving through the atmosphere. And with our first study, we were able to show that plastics that come out with rain are, are generally coming from more proximal sources and urban environments. So if you have a storm front moving through a particular area, it's got a lot of energy, there's a lot of winds, so you can pick up a lot of material that's on the ground and rain it back out. But we found that with the wet de deposition of plastics, or the, sorry, the dry deposition of plastics, was that it was generally coming from much further away. And we were able to show that the rate of deposition falling out dry was influenced by the location of the jet stream. And so that tells us that plastics are moving really high up in the atmospheric column and coming from really far away. Did you say they're, are they drying out by being in the atmosphere? Um, no. Or, what is, or do they get more moist and what does that affect on them? So the, the difference between wet and dry is just how the plastics are being deposited. So the way we sample is if it's a sunny day and it's relatively calm conditions, the plastics that fall out of the, the atmosphere under those conditions, we call dry deposition. But if there's a rainstorm, the rain essentially scrubs the atmosphere of all the particulates that are in the atmosphere. And so we call that wet deposition, but that's really just plastics that are being scrubbed with rainfall. And so we were able to show that by sampling these independently wet and dry deposition that under really calm conditions, we have plastics that are falling out from very high up in the atmospheric column, meaning that they're coming from very far away. And the other evidence we had at this point for microplastics being transported potentially thousands of kilometers and from distal locations is that the size ranges of the plastics that were falling under dry conditions were much, much smaller. So smaller particles can be transported further than larger particles. And we also saw this relationship to elevation. So the higher up in elevation we got, the more plastic deposition we saw dry. And so that again points to this idea that plastics are moving high up in the atmospheric column. Right, well what's happening to them as they move through the atmosphere? Are they agglomerating? Do they become parts of clouds? 
Do they pick up charges? Do they serve as like nucleation sites for other materials? Yeah, those are great questions that we don't really know the answer to. You know, the properties of plastic change while they're in the environment. So a lot of the studies that have been conducted to date use raw plastics, which are in many ways inert. But as plastics remain on the surface of the earth and are exposed to light, they can um, break down, become more brittle. They can form what we call a functional group. So they might which might change their physical behavior in the environment. So they might become more soluble in water. They might be able to adsorb different types of compounds. Microbiota might colonize the surface of the plastic. Um, so the longer the plastic is in the environment, the more its properties, its physical properties change. I think in terms of... Most supplements are taken on faith and could take weeks or months to have an effect. Even supplements backed by scientific studies may or may not deliver those same benefits to you. But what if you could feel the results of what you took within just a few days? Lost Empire Herbs offers the highest quality, wild-harvested, non-irradiated pine pollen, and that can dramatically impact your hormones fast. Right now, you can grab it for one cent plus shipping and handling at GeniusPollen.com. You just have the inert plastic. I mean, a lot of plastics, they have colorants, they have plasticizers, they have thousands and thousands of chemicals in them. So you might have like islands or reservoirs of this inside the plastic structure. And as it breaks down, it may expose those islands. And maybe those are what's causing the interactions and not the plastic backbone. Yeah, definitely. It could be a lot of the different types of polymers as well as the different additives that are in the polymers. But in terms of what it might be doing physically in the atmosphere, the concentrations are probably still too low for it to have a physical effect on atmospheric processes, as far as I know. But I'm not an atmospheric scientist. This is what has been related to me from other atmospheric scientists. Well, what other questions are you you looking at in terms of uh, what happens to them in the air columns? We did a follow-up study where we were trying to understand how plastics were getting emitted into the atmosphere to begin with. So we, we have a lot of information to have how plastics end up in the environment. So we know that through wastewater streams, for example, through uh, mismanaged waste, we a, a lot of plastic pollution ends up in the environment. But how are they moving from the surface of the earth or the surface of the ocean up into the atmosphere? And so we did a study where we hypothesized these different physical me- mechanisms for moving microplastics up into the atmosphere and high enough into the atmosphere where they can be transported long distances. Where we, my colleague Natalie Mahowald, who's an atmospheric modeler, uh, modeled the atmosphere during the time period in which we were sampling so that we could back out what the most likely sources were um, to the atmosphere. And the hypotheses that we had were that a lot of plastics can be emitted to the atmosphere through wave action and bubble burst phenomena in the marine environment. We also hypothesized that cars moving on highways can generate enough energy to move any material that's on the road surface into the atmosphere. So that is not just tire wear, but also any plastic commodity that might be broken down and on the road surface into the atmosphere. We also looked at the potential for agricultural emissions of soil and with that soil any microplastics that might be in the soil and we anticipate that agricultural soils will have higher concentrations of microplastic than wildland soils because of the use of things like um, plastic mulch 
and uh, also uh, biosolid fertilizer application, which is will will tend to have a lot of microplastics in it. And then we also looked at uh, how population centers might mobilize plastics into the atmosphere, and we found that really highways uh, described most of the of the um, emission sources in the terrestrial environment and globally the marine sources really dominated what do you mean the highways or the marine sources what do you mean which which one dominated and how globally so if we consider the entire globe the marine sources dominated but if we think about just in within the terrestrial environment uh, on land the highways were most important how do you know if um if plastics are coming from marine sources and i would think they would be laden with water and they might not get as high up in the air column or Maybe they dry out as they're carried through the air and then they they go up higher and higher. But at first, I would think that they um, be harder for them to volatilize out of marine environments in the first place. So there's processes in the marine environment that produce aerosols. And it has a lot to exactly what you're talking about on a really small scale where you have these little droplets of water that get aerosolized through wave action um, or what's called bubble burst phenomena. And then the the water surrounding the initial the particle dries out and that particle then becomes aerosolized in the atmosphere one of the ways that that wind can carry particles higher into the atmospheric column is if there aren't any any um, obstructions to that wind flow so in the marine environment we don't have a lot of obstruction to wind flow whereas in say a city environment one of the reasons we think cities didn't come out as major sources of microplastics to the atmosphere, um, at least for long range transport, is that there's a lot of buildings. And so it's difficult for the wind surface to reach the wind to reach the surface earth, pick up microplastics and transport it really far. And so though we would anticipate that the general environment of microplastics in a city would be would the cities would have higher concentrations of microplastic in the air than in remote locations, they're not necessarily getting mobilized high enough into the atmosphere for long-range transport within a city, if that makes sense. I could try to rephrase Yeah, interesting. Before we get started, I have a quick favor. I've been self-funding the Finding Genius podcast for five years now. I've done over 3,000 episodes. And as you can see on YouTube, we're up over a million views on the channel, which is fantastic. The next thing I really want to push on is to get up to 10,000 subscribers, because once we do, we'll be able to put a donate button and uh, we'll be able to solicit donations uh, to help keep the podcast running and to also get the Finding Genius Foundation moving along. We have a big project studying anxiety, depression, and PTSD and working on a product to help people overcome these problems uh, because I've seen them explode recently after the, uh, you know, the last two years of the whole virus situation. So if you would, please subscribe to the podcast. That would help us tremendously. Give us a thumbs up. And check in the description for Buy Me a Coffee. It's about five bucks. If you could buy me a coffee, I'd really appreciate it. It would help keep the channel going. And I love coffee. Thank you. What's in the air is different from marine sources versus, uh, let's say, a highway source. Yeah. So there hasn't been a lot of work looking at what's on a highway surface. But there was one study in Tehran that looked at road dust. And there's great images in this publication of all different types of plastic commodities, microbeads, um, films, little brightly colored pieces of particles from a variety of different commodities. 
Um, so not just tire wear, although certainly tire wear would be part of the, the um, plastics that are on the road surface. And in comparison, the marine environment, what kind of plastics predominate there? Well, we can't, we haven't distinguished between how the different source compositions differ because we're looking at a mixed sample. So what we find in our samples are predominantly microfibers, which is very typical of what, what we find in, in any media looking for microplastics. Microfibers always seem to dominate and of mostly related to clothing, um, so nylon, polyester, polypropylene fibers, and a much smaller proportion are particles that are much harder to trace back to a specific commodity source because the particles we're looking at are, are very tiny. So they're, you know, hundred microns down to four microns. So for reference, a red blood cell is about eight microns. And so these are really, really tiny particles that you can only see under a microscope. So it's hard to say what that original commodity or product was before it broke down, was broken down into these tiny, tiny pieces. Hmm. But we did find- How can you- Oh, go ahead, go ahead, sorry. That's okay. Um, we did find that about 10% of the plastics were brightly colored microbeads, which um, in general were a lot smaller than the aperture size of the instrument they were using to identify the polymer type. So we don't have a great idea of what the overall polymer composition of these microbeads were, but we did manage to identify some of them as acrylic. And that to us maybe points to paint and maybe aerosolized uh, paint as a source of these microbeads in the environment. They were generally much smaller than what you would find in cosmetics. And the fact that they're very brightly colored of all colors in the rainbow um, might also suggest that they derive from paint. And the manufacturers of microbeads in these size ranges do indicate that they predominantly sell to paint manufacturers, but also to scientists and medical professionals because they're used to um, calibrate different types of instruments. And so, yeah, there's, I don't, I don't know where I'm going with this, but. It's okay. Really Question, why, why, why um, do fibers predominate, you think? Where are they coming from? Are they coming from, like you say, clothing and why would they predominate in the air in the air column? Are they just more amenable to not being torn apart and to traveling? Yeah, so that's a really great question. Um, I think that perhaps uh, clothing and textiles might. I you know I don't really know what proportion of plastic production is textiles and clothing and how that might relate to the amount of waste we see in the environment. That's not something I've looked into. I think. One of the reasons why we might see a lot of fibers in water and air is because of its its density and properties so that, you know, the, the has a, a large surface area to its relative width. And so it, it would be easy, more easily transported in the water column or through the atmosphere than a, a particle that would be much denser that might potentially sink to the bottom of the ocean or, or fall out of the atmosphere a lot quicker. Oh, it's, so its density would be a lot less. Its weight would be distributed over much more area. And so right. therefore it'd be more likely to stay in the air and be buoyant. Right. So it, it has more drag because it has more surface area. Huh. Interesting. Well, how did you know that, um, or how do, how do scientists know that, uh, marine and highway sources are predominant if, uh, you know, they're getting a mixed bag of stuff that they're sampling. 
Right. So our samples, we're sampling them at the end point. So as they're being deposited. So they're mixed sources um, from many potential areas near and far. And the way we distinguished between the different potential sources was that we used an atmospheric model that represents the, the actual atmospheric movements during the times that we were sampling so that we could backtrace where those particles came from and link it to our uh, prospective mechanisms for plastic movement into the atmosphere. So it's modeled results. And of course, it's, it's, we don't have a lot of data. We only had the, the data that we initially collected from the Western United States over a 14 month period. And so um, we really need many, many, many more studies and a lot more data to really nail down how plastics are getting into the atmosphere and how much plastics are in the atmosphere and where they're being deposited. But this was just the, the first study to do this. So this was our first um, first attempt at tackling this question. And yeah, it's, it's model data. Yeah. What about setting up a, like a filter system on top of a building and, you know, you change the filter once a day and when it rains, you look at it versus when it's dry, when it's hot, when it's cold, you know, and just get an idea of like the variation of what's in the air around a particular building over time. Yeah. So that, that, that type of active sampling where you pull air across a filter is very commonly used to monitor air quality, uh, typically for really small aerosol sizes. So most states and the EPA have a, a program across the United States that uses this type of sampling to understand aerosol concentrations because uh, we, to monitor for regulated size fractions, those size fractions that are 10 microns and smaller, which have human health impacts. The problem with using this type of a sampler for microplastics is that we don't understand how well this type of sampler can capture microplastics because of these different densities and these different sizes. Those, um, those samplers were really designed to capture these really tiny particles in that are closer to spherical in nature than, than a microplastic is. And in general, those types of samplers do rather poorly with larger sized particles, specifically the particle sizes that microplastics come in. And so we haven't, nobody's really tried to evaluate the efficacy of those types of samplers for microplastics. So that's one of the, the drawbacks with using those types of systems, but they certainly have been used in urban environments to try to quantify the amount of microplastics that are present. Well, why not have like a chimney, you know, in a, in a way, and you have a fan sucking air down through the chimney and it goes to a filter. So vertically, like, you know, whatever size the microplastics might be, they would probably either end up on the top of the filter, but they probably wouldn't come out of the column of the chimney, you know, if you're sampling. Yeah. Maybe something like that could be done with a pipe, you know, and a simple filter along the way. Yeah, yeah. We definitely need some people to, some engineers to create something that would work very well for microplastics. Hmm. I don't know. What do you think you're getting close to an answer on in terms of, uh, you know, seeing what's in the air and what type of microplastics and, you know, those kinds of things? Well, our, I mean, to be honest, we were initially just really shocked that it was there. And so some of the first questions we were trying to answer was, where is it coming from and how much is there? Um, and what is it made out of? Um, after that, we wanted to address the question, where is it coming from? How is it getting into the atmosphere? And now what we're trying to do is understand what are the impacts? So what are the implications of having um, microplastics being deposited from the atmosphere for um, 
ecosystems, uh, primarily, that's what I focus on. But we haven't, um, we haven't published anything yet, so I'm not sure if I should talk about it. What else have you found in the air that was surprising to you? You talked about many other kinds of, uh, you know, particular constituents. So what else have you found that you could talk about? Yeah, so we have um, slowly been building a particulate deposition monitoring network across the United States. We started in the West and we've slowly migrating east by adding new sites each year. And we've, we've definitely been able to nail down these seasonal and spatial patterns of not only the de- mass of deposition, but the compositional changes through time and space. And that's going to help us identify where these where this material is com- coming from. We're trying to develop different kinds of fingerprints of different sources of material to the atmosphere using chemistry, using biology, um, microbes and sp- Sorry, microbes specifically, with which I'm doing with some colleagues at uh, BYU. And I ultimately, what we'd like to do is identify if we can identify what regions are producing dust. We can identify what land use practices might be contributing to dust production, and you know, eventually help create better land use practices to prevent that dust from being emitted. Hmm, okay. So it's still, uh, all this is in its infancy. There's still tons of things to figure out. Yeah, yeah. And I I think, um, you know, much of the work that I've focused on to date has been trying to understand how nutrient deposition from this dust might modify aquatic ecosystems. So we have a number of papers published on this topic where we can quantify and, and trace the amount of phosphorus that's coming from dust. And phosphorus is a really important nutrient. It's often the most limiting nutrient to production in freshwater ecosystems. And so when you start manipulating the amount of that nutrient present, you start changing the community that's present, and that might change how the entire system is functioning. And so we've been trying to address the the implications of um, this additional nutrient deposition to these systems. And we've done a little bit of that, and we have a lot of stuff coming through the pipeline that's really exciting. You said that um, a couple of times that a lot of these materials are transported over very large distances, but are there preferential places where this material ends up? You know, does, yeah. does it end up like, what are the, the biggest sinks for this material? That's a really great question. And one of the reasons why I work in mountain ranges is because they're natural barriers to the atmospheric transport of particulates, particularly here in the United States, where we have a lot of our dry areas, a lot of our dust producing areas are to the west of the Rocky Mountains. And so we have this natural laboratory where we have dust producing regions and dust sink areas, these mountain systems. And so that's one area where a lot of our local to regional dust ends up. Globally, I'm not sure where the, what the major dust sinks are. That's a really great question, and I, I haven't really thought of it in that context. Yeah, because I would think that, um, you know, just as, as preferential sources, as preferential sinks where things get pulled out maybe by, you know, how the, you know how there's a rain shadow with mountains. Maybe there's yeah. a deposition shadow based on, you know, various geographies where things preferentially will go and hang out. Yeah, my guess would be that is that there we would see a strong wind shadow or dust shadow if the source was proximal enough we certainly see that in the wind river range where we've done a lot of work and there's a very local dust source so we have a lot of dust happening on the western side of the range very little dust deposition on the eastern portion of the range so that makes that particular mountain range a nice study area 
I think if dusts are coming from far enough away, they will tend to fall out more evenly across the landscape. But there, there must be preferential locations just based on air mass trajectories, right? And the predominant mm -hmm. dust sources. So I think globally, probably the Atlantic Ocean is a, is a sink for Saharan dust, for example. I'm just not the right person to answer that question. Yeah, no, I understand. There's a lot of chemistry and a lot of modeling. And it's, yeah, it's, um, it sounds important to your work, but I know that you can't know everything. It's, it's impossible, but hmm. yeah, very, very interesting. So what's, uh, what do you think is possible that you're going to be able to figure out in the next couple of years from your research? I know there's, there's like real long-term stuff, but do you feel like you're getting close to an understanding of certain things soon? Yeah. So um, one of the things we're trying to understand now is how the, I'm working with Dr. Mackenzie Skiles at the University of Utah, trying to understand how the microplastics and the color of the microplastics influence snow melt. And we're also, in general, trying to understand how the different colors of dust that we collect across the Western United States, how those different types of dust and different sources of dust are going to influence snow melt generation because of the darker colors absorb more solar radiation and accelerate snow melt. We've also oh, yeah, I heard like soot, soot that's deposited in various places can very strongly influence that because it's black. Right. So the albedo yes. would be totally different in snow versus soot-covered soot snow. Right. And since a lot of microplastics are blue in color and tires are black in color, we think that this might have an impact. Not not as nearly as much as dust in general, but we're trying to tease out what is the what is the role of microplastics. In my lab, my students are currently doing a lot of experiments right now with the dust material that we've collected, trying to quantify the biological responses to dust additions to different types of ecosystems. So we're looking at plants, we're looking at algae, we're looking at um, different types of water bodies with sometimes model organisms, sometimes with a community of organisms. And so I'm really excited about the work that's currently happening in our lab. Yeah, no, that's very interesting. Huh. What a what a problem, you know, these microplastics being spewed up and, you know, going all over the world. It's just crazy. It's terrible. But it is what it is. Yeah. Um, it always sort of, it's a little, I feel a little uneasy when I think about how late we realized that plastic was moving through the atmosphere because hmm. clearly it's been happening for decades. Um, but we've only you think it's, it's impossible. Is that like, why, why have we realized so late is it's a, did science say, Oh no, that can't happen. Or, you know, why do you think it happened? <laughs> well, I think because no one was really looking, we, we talked a little bit earlier about how we have really great networks for measuring particles that are smaller than 10 microns in size, because that's the size fraction that has human health implications. But we, they're typically just, you know, collected on these filtered and weighed. They're not necessarily looked at under the microscope. So I think that there just hasn't been interest in what is in the atmosphere. And you know, that's one of the reasons why I'm doing the work that I'm doing is because I, I am interested in what's in the atmosphere and where it's coming yeah. from and what it's doing. Are there any surprising absences of plastic material? In, under certain weather conditions or in certain areas, maybe that would, would tell you something, not just the areas where there's tons of it, but where there's very little of it. Yeah, yeah, that's a, a great point. So we found more microplastics at higher elevations in remote areas than lower elevations, which oh. 
points to how the plastics are moving through the atmosphere so that a lot of this remote deposition is being transported from further away, so it's being transported higher in the atmospheric column. Our site that had the least amount of deposition, I believe, was the Grand Canyon. Why do you think that is? That's weird. Why would these microplastics preferentially be so high up and not lower down? Well, so I think a couple of things. I think one of the reasons that the Grand Canyon had... So I'll speak to why there might be more plastics higher in the atmosphere first. I think if we had been sampling at areas that were close to point sources of plastic, like near urban centers, we might have found the opposite. So if we had sampled a mountain range next to Logan City, where I live, I think what we might see is more plastics near the urban center sort of diminishing as we move up in elevation. But because we sampled exclusively sites that were really remote, we're really looking at the longer range transport of particulates because we, we aren't near this any point sources of, of plastic. And so that's why we saw this higher rate of deposition at more elevated locations because we're looking at the long range transport. And that's in order to have long range transport, the plastics need to be higher up in the atmosphere um, before they say intercept with, with something like a mountain range. Why? Uh, uh, so if you look at uh, short range deposition, is there a radical difference in the composition of what you're getting? What does that tell you? Like what kinds of plastics are more likely to survive and be able to travel long distances? Right. So that's a, a great question. We didn't really notice too many difference in terms of the polymer composition or the morphology, other than that the plastics that we saw that were being transported long range tended to just be a lot smaller in size, but very similar compositions. So still dominantly microfibers and, uh, you know, in general, the same color distribution and the same polymer distribution. So there wasn't too many big differences other than size between what we saw close by and, and further away. But I guess I would also say that in, in some of our rain samples, where we did see larger particles, we did see things that we could start to kind of identify, like um, labels, where we would see a lot of red and black and blue on one side and then white on the other side. So we, we could see that these were potentially pop bottle labels or things like that. Oh, okay. So some of the branding, you, you saw fragments of it on the plastics. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, uh, okay. Huh. Interesting. Well, I guess there's, uh, there's still a ton more to look at in order to solve this puzzle, but um, you know, it's, it's great work that you're doing. Where can people find out more about your work and follow you? I'm on Twitter at, at JLBrainy, B-R-A-H-N-E-Y. And I have a webpage where I post regularly about my science, JaniceBrainy at Weebly.com or .weebly.com. Okay. Well, very good, Janice. Thank you for coming on the podcast and, uh, you know, speculating on things that's, a, again, a, a very complex, incredibly difficult problem. So thank you for coming. Thank you for having me. Remember, before you go, to grab your one penny bag of pine pollen for all the amazing, all-natural hormonal support that men and women the world over are raving about. Try it out and see how it works for you. All you have to do is head to GeniusPollen.com to grab your bag today. Within days, you may be able to notice greater energy, more focus, added recovery, and more. Again, please visit GeniusPollen.com to learn more now. Thank you. 
You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.